You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and burninating the countryside. This is season one, episode two, Dragons. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm so happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, uh, so I, I got one of those wingling dragons. Uh, I'm gonna put one of those big beefy arms back on him. Uh, hey, Carrie. <laughs> That's my strong bad. This is pretty good. <laughs> we just got the Trogdor the Burninator board game. Uh, oh, which, good. Which was kickstarted last year. It's fantastic. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about my kids are right now listening to us read one of my, maybe my favorite book from when I was a very small child, which was My Father's Dragon by Ruth Stiles Gannett. It's a three book series. Uh, um, and it is these little short books for like five and six, seven year olds. And it was my introduction to fantasy and they're just fun. And the dragon is very lovable. And it's a great book. If you've got little kids, totally read My Father's Dragon to them. And it got me thinking about dragons. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, how are you? I'm feeling a little under the weather, so hopefully... I'm pretty clear on the microphone, but um, very excited to be talking about dragons. Dragons are one of my favorite fantasy creatures and a, been a key point in a lot of the books I love to read. I used to play a lot of Magic the Gathering, and uh, the iconic creature for the color red in Magic the Gathering is the dragon. Uh, I remember pulling a card in the early uh, mid-1990s, and it was the Shivan dragon, and it says, wonderful art of the dragon kind of coming in to grab you and it looks like smaug from the hobbit and uh, so yeah dragons have a special place in my heart as well well and they also come up in in so many other places in culture and history every it seems like every culture has a version of the dragon yeah there are so many types of dragons from around the world and we also even find them in the bible uh, there are a few mentions of dragons in the old testament especially in the prophets ezekiel specifically and the imagery from Ezekiel gets picked up in the book of Revelation, uh, where we, we really uh, move the biblical story into the realm of science fiction. I mean, that's how I think of Revelation. The, the, the really strange parts of Revelation really read like sci-fi to me. Oh, absolutely. And Revelation 12, uh, verse 3, and then verses 7 and 8 say, then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And a reading from The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. The bells were ringing in the dale, and men looked up with faces pale. Then dragon's ire more fierce than fire laid low their towers and houses frail. So in our scripture quote, Michael wins. In our quote from The Hobbit, the dragon wins. We'll be right back to talk more about dragons. You mentioned that different cultures have different types of dragons that show up in their mythologies, and they are also a huge part of high fantasy, which we'll be talking about a bit later today. 
but there's also so many dragons that don't really fit into any category that I can think of. Um, there's so many books and movies that I love where there are dragons as a key component, like Mushu from Mulan or Spyro from the video games or Spirited Away has Haku the dragon. There's the Falcor, the luck dragon from the never-ending story. Oh, yeah, Falcor. Yeah. Who doesn't want a luck dragon in their life? I would love it. Um, we mentioned earlier Trogdor, the Burninator. And then the, there's the dragon, the female dragon in Shrek. Mm, yeah, the one that falls for Donkey. Oh, boy. Yeah, talking about upending tropes right there. But they do generally, some of them, we, when we were doing research for this, found out that they kind of fall into three general categories. Would you like to tell us about that, Adam? Yeah, the three categories that we identified were first, ancient, cunning, usually evil or else entirely self-interested creatures. Category two was dragons simply as dangerous wild beasts. And category three were dragons as partners or pets of humans. And if we go back into the history of literature, we find the kind of the first real dragon in Western literature, specifically in Beowulf. Right. And you see the first dragon slayer, one of the first dragon slayers, Beowulf being written before the 10th century, not people aren't quite sure what, and obviously is a huge, being a huge source for Tolkien to draw on when he's later writing The Hobbit. The Beowulf story with uh, the dragon with the horde underneath it uh, is interesting because that is the one that we then get in The Hobbit, which then spurs the whole fantasy genre in the 20th century. Right. But there's another dragon in Christian history, which is the dragon slain by St. George. And St. George was, li was living in the 300s. And then the, uh, the stories of St. George actually were written and written down about the same time as Beowulf. Uh, not in the same location, but it's interesting how they kind of parallel each other. Uh, and the dragon in St. George, the St. George and the dragon, it, there is a princess in that story as well. So we start to see that, that trope of the, the, the knight rescuing the princess from the dragon goes all the way back to that early Christian story. Uh, and there's also some metaphorical content in that about uh, Christ being this, uh, the Savior. Hmm. Also, the idea of St. George trampling the serpent under his feet. There's the, the kind of correlation between dragon and serpent. And we have, of course, in the Bible, the serpent in Genesis, and then we get the language of uh, trampling the serpent. There's often um, the Virgin Mary is uh, depicted with the serpent coming up to bite her. And her treading on it. So it seems like in these examples, the dragons are completely other, inhuman, greedy, and repulsive. Definitely the enemy. The, the Beowulf dragon threatens the very structure of this, of this society that they're in, of um, you know, being an evil up on the hills that's threatening to the com comfort of those who live down below. And it's possible that some of the, the, the language from Revelation that we read earlier supports that notion of dragon uh, the greek word in that text is actually dracon uh, but that beast that michael slays you know the red dragon with the seven heads and ten horns it's this kind of vicious disgusting creature uh, and then the dragon is linked to satan and satan's angels in the war in heaven in revelation chapter 12 so that idea of the dragon as enemy 
is suffused right there within the book of Revelation. And I'm sure that that had some influence on later stories that had that iconic dragon character. Well, that identification of them with the serpent, I know that comes out a little bit in Beowulf. They call him the the slick-skinned dragon, the burning one. It's all very um, monstrous imagery. And Tolkien uses the word worm a lot. Mm. Uh, to describe you know, Smaug is the is the you know the great worm, uh, and so to have that serpentine creature, which is often uh, seductive and cunning, uh, it really harkens back to the serpent in Genesis chapter three, which is trying to seduce Adam and Eve. That's really one of the interesting struggles in The Hobbit is the way that Smaug's personality is so magnetic, so forceful that that Bilbo struggles to remain strong in the face of the force of his personality. It is a seductive type of power. There's like literally a part of Beowulf that's like the plot of The Hobbit. (laughs) It's literally like he was there, there was a hidden passage, someone went in and took a goblet and it drove him into a rage. Hmm. So we see some borrowing there on the part of Professor Tolkien. I haven't accessed this part of my college education in like 10 years. So there you go. That's why we started this podcast, Carrie. Just to brush off that thesis I wrote. Moving us into the 20th century canon um, is starting with Professor Tolkien. We have in his in that first story that was published, uh, The Hobbit, we have Smaug. It wasn't the first story that he wrote. It, when he was in the trench during World War I, he wrote a lot of the stories that ended up turning into the Silmarillion. And several of those stories have dragons in them. Uh, also, when he's in the trench during World War I and seeing the tanks for the first time... I can just see in his mind that translation of the the tanks to the to the dragon and the war machines that we see in the Lord of the Rings and trying to imagine himself into this fantasy world so that he can push away the horror of war that he's experiencing. And isn't that the best way to use fantasy sometimes is as a way of investigating issues or problems in your own life, things that are very present, but from a slight distance? And for Tolkien, especially in those stories in the Silmarillion, there are dragons, there's Glaurung, uh, there's uh, Ancalagon, and they are slain by the heroes. Uh, Turin Turumbar slays Glaurung, uh, Eärendil slays Ancalagon. By the way, I love the Silmarillion, and it will crop up quite a bit during this. As well it should, just because some of us haven't been able to make it all the way through. The first time I read the Silmarillion, I cried buckets at the end of it. It was like finishing the Bible. It was amazing. Then when we move to The Hobbit, we have uh, the dragon who has won. Smaug has defeated the dwarves, has sent them into their refugee status, essentially, has caused the desolation of Dale and the surrounding environs of the Lonely Mountain. Uh, And we enter the story of The Hobbit from Bilbo's perspective, going to the mountain and as you said before, seeing Smog the Magnificent. So Bilbo goes into the, uh, the lair of Smog in the Lonely Mountain and has that long conversation with the dragon uh, where Bilbo tries to sort of out-dragon the dragon, tries to trick the dragon with all of his uh, titles. And, and then the dragon says, I can smell you. I know, you, I don't know exactly what you are because I've never smelled something like you. 
Um, maybe you're one of those lake town people. Uh, and that's when we get the rousing of the dragon, which obviously Tolkien borrowed from Beowulf. Um, and then he goes and destroys Lake town. We get that, uh, that, that dragon there who is the evil cunning ancient dragon, who is also incredibly selfish and greedy. And then when he's roused, he turns into that wild, dangerous fire breathing beast. You and I both play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and in Dungeons and Dragons, we have both of those different types of dragons. We have the cunning ancient dragon, and we also have the bestial dragon. That's right. And I've, I've only encountered one type of dragon in Dungeons and Dragons, which is when you gave us a fey flower dragon, which to this day might be my favorite dragon. It, it was, it put you to sleep instead of killing you. It was so beautiful. We all you, loved him. You guys were a little bit on the, the low level for fighting a dragon at that point, so... But now we've had both a dungeon and a dragon. There you go. Moving from the ancient cunning beast, we also have some more of the dangerous beast. Talk a little bit about the Harry Potter dragons. The Harry Potter dragons seem to be kind of like how we would treat maybe an endangered species of tiger, something to be respected and protected, but not necessarily partnered with or friends with. Um, the various dragons we see in Harry Potter are not intelligent creatures. They're like any other animal, um, reliant on their environment to stay alive. And they're not going to be having conversations with humans or doing anything particularly self-centered aside from surviving. So they're different from Smaug, for example. Um, we see, of course, the Hungarian horntail that Harry fights in book four, the Chinese fireball, the Swedish short, short snout, the common Welsh green. There's all kinds of dragon breeds and they're really just kind of like any other magical creature, any kind of animal. There's people who dedicate their lives to protecting them. That's one of Charlie Weasley's jobs because they're not able to roam free the way that they may have used to before the statute of secrecy went into place. So they're really kind of like a protected, to be protected on reservations away from muggles. So muggles can't get hurt, but then also the dragons aren't attacked. It's interesting how talking about the Harry Potter dragons segues kind of nicely into talking about the Game of Thrones dragons. Oh, yes, they're a similar type. So dragons in Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire, if you're a book enthusiast, those are rare, um, much rarer than in Harry Potter. And they only come back into the world with Daenerys hatching those three dragon eggs from the ashes of Khal Drogo's funeral pyre. Daenerys definitely struggles with the fact that they are they're her partners, they're her children, she calls them, but they're also animals. And that's a big theme in at least the fifth book of um, A Song of Ice and Fire with Drogon accidentally killing a young girl and then her locking up the other two to prevent them from killing anybody else. So they're more dangerous, more feral, but also can be valuable partners for that family. Yeah, they have that kind of dual thing. If they're off on their own, they are that wild creature. But then when they're with Daenerys, they... Uh, are subservient to her, really, uh, even though she uh, there's a moments where she is a little afraid of them. Absolutely. And it's also, I think it's heightened in the book. I just, as you know, I've been slogging my way through A Dance of Dragons and the scene where Daenerys rides Drogon for the first time in the book, she's screaming at him, whipping him, shouting, stop, stop, as he's burning in the fighting pits. It's a really alarming scene and very different from how it was done in the show. Hmm. I think just shows, I, th I think she struggles more with it in the books, the fact that they are 
so dangerous. Yeah, in the show, it's it's very romanticized. She just jumps on the back and off she goes, whooping like Harry on his broom. I was wondering about the intelligence of them. Recently, the script from the final episode got released and there had been all this debate. Spoiler alert for the last season of Game of Thrones. If you haven't watched it, you might want to skip ahead. Or not watch it. Or not watch it and just live your life a happier person. I mean... Um, so why does Drogon melt the Iron Throne? People have been postulating that maybe he thinks it's responsible for his mother's death, that she wanted the throne so much that he burned it after she died. And again, this is a, the authorial intent behind that. Apparently, it was just saying that it got in the way of his wrath. He burned the back wall of the keep to be as in anger, but the throne just got in the way. That's interesting because that actually mirrors a little bit Daenerys's own destruction of King's Landing. Daniel and David did not think of them as intelligent enough to understand the symbolism there, but just pure anger, pure animal anger. Yeah, and it's strange because because we are so uh, steeped in the idea of dragons being ancient and cunning, when we do meet a dragon that is more feral and wild, we uh, want to invest a an intelligence greater than they might actually have onto them. Absolutely. And, and instead we have his kind of animal like innocence nudging his mother's dead body. Like any animal would do if a companion was gone, not quite understanding. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder if he would have killed John, if John hadn't been a Targaryen. That's the question, isn't it? Might be the only part in which his parentage actually mattered. <laughs> all right. What? Let's okay, not sorry. get off topic here. <laughs> we can rant about Game of Thrones all we want. Uh, but as we move from the ancient evil cunning dragon to the wild dragon, it moves us into dragons as partners and pets of humans. Because obviously an ancient cunning dragon would never be that. Right. They would be the enemy of the people. So in Game of Thrones, we see a bit of dragon partnership, but they're still very much animals. And I think that the, the most fully realized example of the dragon partner is, of course, the Dragon Riders of Pern series by Anne McCaffrey. I know nothing about this series, so I'm really interested to hear you talk a little bit about it. It's problematic in a lot of ways. It was very much written in its time. So there's some really tricky gender dynamics and other things like that. But it's one of my favorite series. And I love it because it makes the shift within the course of the books from a fantasy series to a science fiction series. And as you, it starts out with many of the tropes of fantasy. So there's people living in these kind of feudal societies, partner, some of them partnering with dragons. And as the story unfolds, you learn more and more about how the dragons got there, that they were actually genetically engineered from indigenous species that from the planet, these little fire lizards that when it became necessary to create this flying defense force for the planet, they had to breed these creatures larger and larger and then they get dragons. And the way the partnership works is when a dragon is hatched, the human that it, he or she attaches to is called impression. And then they are bonded for life in this telepathic bond. And through that telepathy, you realize that the dragons are fully sentient, fully intelligent. And when the rider dies, the dragon will actually suicide. And if a dragon dies, its partner will struggle, maybe also die, um, or just feel like a loss 
that defines their entire life. So it's really some of the bonds between the dragons and the humans in the Pern books are beautiful and heart-wrenching and incredibly central to their society. Sounds a little bit like Elliot and E.T., I never saw E.T. You've never seen E.T.? I was afraid of aliens when I was little. I think I still am afraid of aliens, although I'd like to (laughs) meet some. Um, So the the dragons in the Pern series are uh, bonded with their human companion. Do any of them live alone in the wild, or are they all in that bonding relationship? A dragon will always bond with a person. Um, they're not able to be born in any other sort of way. And actually there's, there's people presented to the dragons for, as candidates. And some of the most incredible parts of the series are when the dragons will be searching for someone who's not standing right there. Maybe mm. going up to the audience and finding in one case, an unlike a girl for the first time, a, a woman was riding a, a fighting dragon and Oh God, I'm going to cry now thinking about it. And she's finally accepting that this dragon wants her. It's so heart-wrenching and I want a dragon. But you have Declan, your dog. Unfortunately, he's not an intelligent creature. In the Pern books, are they considered pets or are they considered partners? How does that work? They're partners. They're the most important creatures on the planet. Let's compare this a little bit then to our our final dragon uh, world, which is How to Train Your Dragon. Now, I know this is a book series too, but I've never read the books. I've only seen the first two movies. I have not yet seen the third one, which came out fairly recently. But the first one's the real, I think, the one where this trope gets played out the most. We move towards that partnership angle, uh, but the dragons begin in this story in that wild, feral, dangerous space. And it's simply because the humans haven't taken the time to understand these creatures. That's right. And not just, I think it's so interesting that the young people go from being trained for dragon slaying to eventually they're, they're supported in being dragon partners. Yeah. And it's like a full cultural shift for this small Viking civilization. We now have this society, which is partnering with the dragons and it really is toothless and hiccup their uh, burgeoning relationship throughout the story, which uh, is a, it's a story of discovering the other. Well, they said, he said when he was presenting this to the village of that, everything we know about them is wrong. Toothless is missing part of his tail and Hiccup is missing one of his feet. Uh, and so they're both, uh, they both are facing these physical challenges. And it's in that uh, connection that they discover that they need each other. Right, it becomes like a symbiotic relationship where Toothless is able to help him move around in a way he couldn't otherwise. And vice versa. Yeah. When Hiccup is describing uh, his first encounter with Toothless, he says, I wouldn't kill him because he looked as frightened as I was. I looked at him and I saw myself. Uh, And that idea of seeing oneself in the other And especially in an other that seems so different, so foreign, really brings us back to our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, Because I think that as we look at these different uh, varieties of interacting with dragons in literature, once we get to a story like How to Train Your Dragon or The Dragon Riders of Pern, we start to see ourselves in that, essentially that beast. But they're not a beast. They are 
just they are another being for us to honor and to see and to fully bless. And finally, that they have they have way more in common than they do have separately. Even if the looks are different, even if the how they are how they live their lives are different. Hiccup calls Toothless Bud like the whole movie. It's his they're buddies, you know they're they're friends uh, even though they aren't anything alike and they're supposed to be enemies according to Hiccup's father. And in Pern, they sometimes the way they'll talk to the dragons is such a more tender way than they'd speak to other humans. They'd say, you know, my love or my light of my life. They almost speak to them as though they're, they're lovers and they are truly the loves of their lives. So as we, as we wrap up this discussion, I'm interested in that motion from the ancient evil cunning dragon moving us all the way to these partners of humanity. Uh, because it's almost a redemption of the dragon figure coming out of the serpent of the, in the garden of Eden uh, and the, the evil satanic dragon of the book of revelation. And we move all the way to these dragons that we are friends with or partners with that we understand each other. Uh, And I think that in our walks of faith, that's really one of the main reasons for life is how do we move from seeing something as uh, so other that it is evil to understanding what that might be and then relating to it in a whole nother way. It almost sets the bar so high that the fact that we can imagine friendships with dragons means that how hard could it be to identify with other human beings if we can relate to these scaly lizard-like creatures find them to be equals and partners then other humans are should be easy by comparison even if they are different than us now move into the section of this podcast of our book club, where we slowly make our way through a certain text and look for what resonances it might have with our faith. We started off with Harry Potter, which is kind of the text of my life, I would say. Um, If I could add it to the biblical canon, I think I would, along with Dante's Commedia. So we are going through chapters one through three of Sorcerer's Stone today. Chapter one, The Boy Who Lived. Vernon and Petunia Dursley live at number four, Privet Drive, in a bland and uneventful part of England, where nothing ever happens, but Petunia gossips about it anyway. Mr. Dursley doesn't like anything out of the ordinary, and for him, ordinary means going, driving to work, working, and driving home, with the odd donut in the middle of the day to spice things up. It is on one of these donut adventures when Mr. Dursley overhears some oddly dressed folks talking excitedly. He hears the name Potter and Harry and dread fills him because he's pretty sure his wife's sister married some layabout named Potter and had a son with him named Harry. But it couldn't be. Surely there are other Harry Potters in the country. Mr. Dursley tries to push the odd event out of his mind, but he can't because more odd events keep happening that day. Even the weatherman on the news is going on about the strange behavior of owls. And someone called Mr. Dursley a muggle earlier, and he doesn't know what that means, but it can't be good. Oh, and there's a cat outside who's been there all day. At night, after Privet Drive goes to sleep, the cat watches an old man appear on the street and extinguish all the street lamps with a little device in his hand. 
the old man is Albus Dumbledore, a wizard of great renown, and the cat is Professor Minerva McGonagall. But she isn't always a cat and proves this by turning into a human to converse with Dumbledore. Are the rumors true, McGonagall asks, is you-know-who really gone? You mean Voldemort, says Dumbledore, apparently the only person in the wizarding world capable of saying the name of the most powerful dark wizard of modern times. Yes, it's true. Voldemort killed Lily and James Potter, but could not kill their baby son, Harry. Very sad and curious, too. Over McGonagall's stern objections, the Dursleys are the worst sort of muggles. Dumbledore plans to deliver one-year-old Harry to his aunt's doorstep, where he can grow up outside the wizarding world, a world in which he will be famous. Half-giant Rubeus Hagrid brings the baby to Crit Drive on a borrowed motorbike, borrowed from a bloke named Sirius Black. Just file that away for later. Hagrid can't bear to part with the boy, but he does what Dumbledore tells him. He places Harry's basket and letter at the door to number four. Here is Harry Potter, the boy who survived a killing curse from you-know-who, with nothing more than a lightning-shaped scar. The boy who will grow up never knowing the truth about his magical parents. The boy who lived. Chapter 2, The Vanishing Glass. Ten years later, we re-enter the story and spend quite a bit of time learning just how mistreated Harry Potter is at number four, Privet Drive. His aunt treats him like a servant, his uncle like a piece of unsightly furniture, and his cousin Dudley like a punching bag. Harry lives in the cupboard under the stairs because the two upstairs bedrooms are reserved for Dudley and Dudley's old toys, respectively. Dudley breaks everything he owns, so it's a good thing today is his birthday, for he will soon receive more things to break. The Dursleys are going to the zoo to celebrate the anniversary of the nativity of their son, and as luck would have it, Harry's sitter cancels. Begrudgingly, they take Harry with them. No funny business, warns Uncle Vernon. Too many odd things have happened around Harry for Vernon to be entirely at ease with Harry in public, and wouldn't you know it, but something funny happens. Harry talks to a boa constrictor. Then the glass containing the snake vanishes. Then the snake escapes, but not before thanking Harry for the assist. Back home at number four Privet Drive, Harry is sent to his cupboard, where he wonders if anyone, if anyone at all, cares about him or even knows he exists. Chapter 3, The Letters from No One. Summer holidays begin, and Harry is finally released from his long punishment. The only glimmer of hope he has is that in September, secondary school will start, and he and Dudley will be separated. Dudley is going to Smeltings, his father's boarding school, in which the boys carry sticks with which to hit one another. Dudley practices on Harry, or tries to, but Harry is quick. Harry will be going to the local high school, where he will wear some of Dudley's old clothes dyed the gray of the school's uniform. Harry thinks he will look like an elephant with especially saggy skin. But then a letter arrives, and our story begins to take a turn. The letter is addressed so plainly to Harry that it couldn't be a mistake. But Uncle Vernon pretends it must be. He and Aunt Petunia know the truth, but dash it all if they're going to let on. They do allow Harry to take over Dudley's second bedroom, however, because someone must be watching the house. With each passing day that the Dursleys deny Harry his letter, more and more letters arrive, finding even sneakier ways into the house. Over time, this drives Uncle Vernon batty, and he resorts to an unplanned family trip, which lands them in a shack on a rock in the sea in the middle of a storm at night. Uncle Vernon is thrilled. There's no way the post can find them here. But it's not the post he has to worry about. At midnight, just as the day of Harry's 11th birthday begins, there's a booming knock at the door. 
I was struck, Carrie, by the very first paragraph, uh, how the Dursleys think of themselves as perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Using them, yeah, using themselves as the measuring stick for normal. Things are described as undursley-ish. And that anything else is nonsense. Yeah, it's interesting how the Dursleys at the beginning of this story are see themselves as the norm because it allows us as the readers to say, yeah, but no, I, I want the magic. I want, I want, so, yeah. I want something else than this, you know, this, uh, um, privet drive life. You're going to say provincial life, like from, yeah. I almost days. went there. I, I felt <laughs> myself going into a Disney song, but I didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> it's a familiar scene of British suburban life, but because they're the main point of view characters in the beginning, you can identify with them, see them as familiar, but like you said, you might want something more magical. Um, you don't want to spend your the rest of the book in the head of somebody who doesn't approve of imagination as Vernon does. And that's what's so interesting about the shift, I think, in the first three chapters from the point of view of Vernon, putting us in the shoes of Professor McGonagall and moving us then to Harry. It's a way of shifting us from that normal, everyday, Dursley-ish existence into the magical. Uh, and it's interesting, though, because we talk about the Dursleys seeing themselves as the, as the norm, as the measuring stick. And at the same time, the two magical characters in Chapter 1, Dumbledore and McGonagall, see themselves in a similar light. You know, McGonagall saying, you couldn't find two people less like us. So it actually works both ways. I mean, just that the term muggle is not exactly unfreighted. That's right. Uh, nor nor in, in Fantastic Beasts, you know, the American term nomage. The idea that there's madges and nomages. Right. It's a very us and them mentality. The fact that J.K. Rowling starts the story with this idea of the us versus them, the muggles versus the magic users, both groups seeing themselves as normal, really does set the stage for the whole of Harry Potter, where we have different groups vying for uh, primacy. Uh, we have the uh, people who consider themselves purebloods versus you know half-bloods and muggle-borns uh, in, the, in the magic world. And then, of course, the whole vast array of muggles outside of it, uh, who the bad guys don't care about, about at all. And the bad guys purposely going out of their way to other them to talk about how they're... Where, this is getting rather far ahead of chapters one through three, but later on the books when they spread pop propaganda about how muggles are basically just animals. The language that the author uses here is ripped directly from uh, the real world, in, uh, and it really is a, a mirror to racism. And to the point where blood status in Harry Potter is also largely a social construct. It's kind of like race. It's not actually rooted in biology necessarily. They said most, most wizards are half-bloods anyway. But it really is. It's all there in chapter one. Uh, J.K. Rowling setting up the uh, the idea of otherness kind of connects back to our discussion about the dragons, how we move from that ancient evil to the partnership, and will we be able to do that in the story of Harry Potter? Will does that is that going to happen throughout the story? And of course, the the main theme of it being love is going to be very important to that. Initially, 
all Harry knows is the Dursleys and to set up the dichotomy between him and Dudley is like Dudley is very normal for his family and Harry is fully normal for a wizard boy, i.e. there's magical stuff happening and his hair won't stop growing. But setting up that tension between the two of them, I think really summarizes that tension between the magic and the muggle world. And as we see later in the books, it's not totally insurmountable. They do come to some form of an understanding. We have a kind of a haves and haves nots between Harry and Dudley as well, where Harry gets Dudley's hand-me-down clothes. Uh, it's even described as, you know, when Petunia is dyeing them gray for his school uniform, Harry thinks he's going to look like an elephant, you know, like, a, like he's got this saggy elephant skin on. Right, because he doesn't fit into Dudley's secondhand anything. And also, when, when he finally gets Dudley's second bedroom in Chapter 3, we see all of Dudley's cast-off toys that are broken and uh, destroyed. Well, and it's, it's interesting to see then his priorities shift when he finds out about the letters and he gets moved to the second bedroom. As he's going to bed, he thinks that he would have rather be back in his cupboard and have a letter than to be in the second bedroom when all he wanted the day before was to have a little, not to be sleeping under the stairs. So that introduction, that hint of something other, something magical, is what makes him dissatisfied with the secondhand broken life that he already has. And that makes me think of the, when, when, when somebody gets that first hint glimmer of something more, mm. be something more, capital something more of existence. Uh, we might call it God, the universe saying there is something beyond you. Uh, that's kind of what Harry is seeing the glimpse of here when he when that first letter shoots through the mailbox, uh, and he sees the green writing and the beautiful paper, and he thinks, "Wow, somebody, somebody knows that I exist." Right, someone knows exactly who I am and where I am, and is interested in communicating with me. That's so foreign for his life. That's not normal for him. And and I think that in, in the life of faith, when, when people are first introduced to that concept that there is an all-powerful creator who also seems to care about you personally, it, it's, it, there's, there's like this disconnect. And, and it, as a preacher, I, I feel like I'm confronted by that disconnect a lot. The, that both and of the transcendent creator God with the imminent personal God when we see in, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, we actually see both understandings of God, the creator, transcendent creator God in chapter one, uh, and then the, 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 the God that walks in the garden and breathes life into nostrils in chapter two. And when we're talking, when we see Harry holding that letter, I see him on that kind of that edge of that precipice of stepping into, the, into a world uh, of his world being magical world, but uh, equating that to stepping into the world of uh, seeing something more in existence than just your own situation. And sometimes feeling unworthy of it. I, I don't think this happens in the book, but in the movie, I can hear it perfectly when he says, I can't be a wizard. I'm Harry, just Harry. We're never just anything. And part of the joy of being in relationship with a loving, intimate God is that we're not just anything in God's eyes. We are fully ourselves and fully beloved. And I feel like Harry's journey from anonymity and being ignored, being put cast off and with the broken things into being kind of a superstar. Um, maybe it pushes it a bit too far of a, of a comparison, but he moves from 
unknowing into knowing and into love, into warmth. And it all begins, as you said before, with him being known. Right. Literally a letter addressed to him and in a personal invitation. Yeah. To Mr. H. Potter, the cupboard under the stairs for number four, Privet Drive, Little Winging, Surrey. It, when you first read that, it's just a funny detail. Like, oh, he, they address it all the way to the cupboard under the stairs. But going back and looking at it from a deeper uh, angle, we see that that concept of, you know, knowing exactly where you are. Mm. God, and God finds you exactly where you are, even if you're in a broken, forgotten place under the stairs. When Harry moves, the, the location of the letter moves as well. It is the smallest bedroom, number four, Privet Drive. Uh, and then later on, it's the, what is it? Uh, hut, hut on the rock, hut the, on the rock. sea. <laughs> the sea. The right. sea, but just been addressed to the sea. In C.S. Lewis's writing, uh, in his letter writing to people, I, I remember reading one of his uh, letters to somebody and describing, and maybe this corrupts up in mere Christianity or somewhere else as well, I'm not sure, um, describing prayer as sending mail it, and then it just kind of getting lost at the post office and never really getting delivered. And that feeling of I'm just putting things out into, into the void and nothing's coming back. In reality, prayer is our response to a motive force, something that is happening to us, very much like Harry getting the letters. Harry's not calling out for, the, he, he knows nothing about it. It, it just, it, the thing, weird things have happened to him. And then this letter comes and now it's his turn to respond to the letter, to say yes, and we'll get to Haggard next time, but to say yes to this new world that's opening up to him. There's one moment where Harry gets an ice cream. That's no, that's that's exactly she the the smiling lady in the van like turns to him before they can leave and asks him, and it would be saving face for them. They save face by getting him a cheap lemon ice pop, I think they call it. Wow, that's some good detail work right there. I've Harry. told you I have read. I don't <laughs> need this copy I'm flipping through. It's in the brain. Yeah, and so there's a moment there of Harry being known, noticed, seen, you know, appreciated, given a smile. One other thing that I caught was uh, this fantastic bit of social commentary. Uh, the the smelting stick uh, that the, the knobbly knobbly sticks used for hitting each other when the teacher's not looking. Quote: This was supposed to be good training for later life. And it probably is for the type of society that Vernon and Petunia are raising Dudley to be a part of. Where like that bullying, hitting one another to get, when the teacher's back is turned, trying to see how much you can get away with. It's great training for that kind of a life. It's interesting to me though that here we, we see the smelting stick and Dudley is walking around with a smelting stick. It's basically an analog for a wand. And what is Harry's signature spell later on? Expelliarmus, the disarming spell. The whole time he's, he's trying to disarm Dudley. This, this childhood trauma that he's been suffering his entire life up to age 11, the spell that, he, that attracts him that he's so good at is, is, is trying to uh, heal that trauma. I think it's so interesting the way I'm just thinking about how belittled and ignored he gets to the point where 
there's a line that says the Dursleys often spoke about Harry like this as though he wasn't there or rather as though he was something very nasty that couldn't understand them like a slug hmm. that just how to grow up in a place with such a, emotional abuse, such ignorant, you know, ignoring of your very personhood, how delightful it would be to be addressed by name, to be found, to be, have people interested in his life and just how sad it is that that's foreign. And it also will show why he's so reticent to accept love from other people later in the story. Yeah. Or, or to understand that love is the most powerful thing there could be. Next time, our book club will be tackling chapters four and five of Sorcerer's Stone, The Keeper of the Keys, and Diagon Alley. So happy reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, wherethewind.com. That's where, W-H-E-R-E, thewind.com. Check out my fantasy novels, The Storm Curtain and The Halfling Contagion on my website or Amazon.com. Carrie eschews social media, but you can find her right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. And now may God, who created all creatures under heaven, bless you and keep you this day, bringing warmth to your halls and your homes and your hobbit holes, keeping you safe from winged beasts and all other dangers. And the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Is it Rubeus? Oh, did I say? All right. So a long time ago, there was a pronunciation guide published and it said Rubeus. I've always said Rubeus. I think in the movies, they say Rubeus. He goes by Hagrid almost the whole time. So they very rarely say his first name. The official pronunciation guide said Rubeus.